When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, we're going to start with the Knights. We're going to cover the Knights and the Panthers today. Like that, Chuck's all over this, by the way. Speaking of cheerleaders. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Um, we'll start with the Knights. Yeah, let's start with the Knights. And this is the easiest one anyone can come up with. Um, and it uh, hasn't taken much imagination. Kalen Ponga. Okay. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, like, I've, I've tried to steer away from the obvious ones, but you just can't hear with the Newcastle Knights because he is the Newcastle Knights, Kalen Ponga. We saw one of the most remarkable seasons last year. Because don't forget, and I think it's probably been underplayed a little bit, there were some serious question marks on if he would come back and play rugby league at all off the back of that concussion. At all. Went to Canada, came back, even admitted to himself that he had some self-doubt whether he he would be able to to, to come back onto the field. And not not only did he come back onto the field, he returned with this edge that we hadn't seen in Kalamponga. This determination, this grit, this real, all right, I know where I'm at in my career. I know what I am what I can do for this club. And he put him on his back and led him to the finals. Won a daily end medal in the process and just completed, you know, it wasn't Tom Travojevic-like season in terms of sheer dominance. But from where he came back from, um, I think it was one of the most remarkable eight months that mm. we've seen a person have from the... The lowest of lows in my career could be over to to finally stringing games together, living up to the hype because they haven't got bang for their buck, Newcastle. They've seen glimpses of it and, and he's been, you know, a draw card and all the talent in the world, but they just haven't got that million dollar plus. He's the highest paid player in the game. Yeah. Caelan Ponga. And last year, finally he played like that. And if he can get close to that level again, the Knights can do some serious damage in this competition. Yeah, and they were hot at the end of the year. Business end, they were one of those teams where you're thinking, wow, if you come up against them and Kalen has a day, yeah, they, you know, you're a team that could play your best game and still get beaten. That's how good Kalen Ponger is. But I guess my question on the back of that, MC, is we saw him opt out of Origin because of what was going on and yeah. wanted to get a full string of games together. Reese Walsh is incredible. Mm. You've got numerous other candidates that could play that role. AJ Brimson has done it. Um, but I think the genuine conversation here is much like the Trebojevic Tedesco conversation, yeah. and even you know Dylan Edwards and the extension to Clint Gutherson and numerous others. How do you fit Kalen Ponga and Reese Walsh into an Origin environment for Queensland? You just have to. You both. have to. You have both. to play them both. Like Kalen's shown potentially he can be that, but then it it's hard because you can say you can play the bench utility, but then 
what happens to Ben Hunt and Harry Grant combination, which has worked so well for him for the last mm. three years. Because I don't think you can have Grant, Hunt, Ponga, Walsh. You know, you can't have two of them off, two of those four on the bench. Because well, it makes it a really small bench then. Maybe they can because Ruben Cotter, Carrigan, Tino maybe, can all but play it's a big lot, it's, a, it's a risk to have those sort of yeah. two, you know, an outside back and a half hooker on the bench. Um, it Yeah, it makes your bench very, very small. Does one of them play? Kalen has dabbled at centre before. We've seen him do that with, with players. I don't know, but... Not my problem. They're in disarray already, the Queenslanders. <laughs> We've talked about that already this morning. Yeah, a bit of a riff going on up there. Was that what you said? No, I did not say that. <laughs> no, Don't start that. Uh, we but won't yes. start that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the Panthers. Yep. Who have you got there? Jerome Luai. Um, obviously, because of what's happened in, in the last couple of months with, with Jerome Luai, obviously was frustrated with Penrith before Christmas when um, it leaked out that he was going to leave the club. He, he didn't go to training for those last couple of days before Christmas, has opted to sign with the West Tigers. Um, we know what sort of persona he is and the headlines that he attracts, and a lot of it he does bring upon himself. Um, and But being that million-dollar signing that's going to go to the West Tigers um, in, in 25, look, he'll probably be on this list two years in a row because he'll be here at Penrith this year, and then next year yep. you'd say he'll be on that list for the West Tigers when he becomes the main man. But we've seen so many Penrith players sign 12 months out and have success. Crichton, Kikau, Coruscant, you know, all these guys still produced elite performances in their final 12 months at Penrith. And I think Jerome can do the same. It seems that he's got such a great relationship with a lot of his peers, yeah. you know, Brian Toto and numerous others at the Panthers that despite signing elsewhere, it, the opportunity to achieve more on the back of what they've already achieved the last two years in particular. Yeah. You could be talking about that lasting legacy of not just Jerome, but this Panthers group. And that's enough in in terms of an elite athlete and the drive and the motivation to be your best. Mm. Other than the fact that you just love the game and love footy. Yeah. Um, Getting out there. He's got it all in front of him this year. He does. He does. And you know he creates headlines. Your headlines. My headlines. Yeah. Yeah, No, we're sweet. People always ask me. We're we're fine. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. 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 We're good. Any other riffs going on? No, not really. Not really. Um, other than with Jimmy Smith? <laughs> that's you and Jimmy. I'm, I'm, the, I'm smoking the peace pipe between you guys. That's my role as facilitator. And we had a text yesterday about the All-Stars from Mark, and I said I'd check when that side gets named. It gets named oh. next week. Okay. So it'll be named next week. There's another text here from Noosa Bronco, and when do the trials start? The first trial is Feb 15. Broncos v Storm. Away. Not far away. We're on the 1st of Feb today, so two weeks away. And look at you going away doing your research, doing your homework. Yeah. Mickey Arthur would be proud. (laughs) Mickey Arthur would be proud. Uh, We've been discussing all of the big stories this morning. 0457 736 736 is the Edgewater Homes text line. 1300 011170 is the open line. The NRL players under pressure from MC. The Knights, Kalen Ponga and the Panthers, Jerome Luai. Tell us what you think. Is there other players that MC should consider? Who else did you want to talk about? Text us in. Tell us your thoughts. Give us a call. We're here for Brighton's Lawyers. Unable to work due to injury or illness? Contact Brighton's Lawyers. Stay with us. Straight to your calls and texts in just a moment. Jump on the line now and have your say. We have a Signet Boost Power Bank to give away to today's best open line caller. That number again, one 300 01 
looks to me as if they're going to bowl underarm off the last ball. Rod Marsh is saying no, mate, but I'm sure he's going to bowl an underarm delivery on the last ball and bowl it along the ground and be sure that it has not been hit for six. The umpires have been told, the batsmen have been told, and this is possibly a little bit disappointing. Let's make sure it is an underarm, but I've got the feeling as a big ex-Victorian skipper, we're going to bowl an underarm. We have believed it. That's a disappointing finish. Disappointed Brian McKechnie, the crowd boom, and it's all over. Let me just tell you what I think about it. I think it was a disgraceful performance from a captain who got his sums wrong today, and I think it should never be permitted to happen again. Now, that is on this day in 1981, and we've got former Australian skipper on the line, legend of the game and all-around great bloke, Greg Chappell. Good morning, Greg. How are you? And firstly, what happens you know, in your mind when you listen to that? I'm sure you've never spoken about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> G'day, Trent. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have expected uh, we'd still be talking about it 43 years later, but anyway. Um, yeah, look... Um, it, it's not one of the better moments that uh, I get to reflect on. Um, it does come up fairly regularly at cricket functions. I've probably answered the question about a million times, <laughs> I reckon, since um, since the day. Um, it, it doesn't change much. Um, you know, the, the, the difficult part, probably for people to understand, is it had very little to do with what was going on on the field on that day. Um, that was part of it, obviously, but... Um, there was a lot of stuff going on around the team and, and cricket at the, at the time, not least of all around the MCG and the, the standard of the pitches that we were copying at the MCG at the time. And we were, I was in the middle of plenty of discussions on a regular basis, um, almost a daily basis, particularly every time we played at the MCG about, you know, to the cricket board about getting better facilities they didn't own the ground, so they would go to Cricket Victoria, who didn't own the ground. They would go to the Melbourne Cricket Club, and basically the Melbourne Cricket Club didn't seem to, to care very much, which was a great shame because, you know, the Melbourne Cricket Ground was the focal point of Australian cricket from around the world. It was sort of seen as the centre of Australian cricket, and to serve up those sort of conditions consistently at the MCG it was disappointing from everyone's point of view, except it seems to um, the MCC at the at the time. So it was um, a decision that was made on the spur of the moment. It wasn't something that I'd, I'd thought about, but I saw my um, Brian McKechnie walking out to bat. Um, New Zealand couldn't win the game; they needed six to to tie the game, and it was really just basically that my thinking as he walked out the bat was that, you know, I've had a gut full of this and this is what I think of it. And, um, you know, it was probably about as good a decision that um, I was in a, a state of mind to be able to make at that stage. So probably the point, I didn't hear Bill's or, or Richie's commentary until much later, <clears throat> but probably the, the most notable thing of that day was the kids used to run on the ground. At the end of the game, they'd jump the fence and run out on the ground and, and hundreds, thousands of them, did that day and I was fielding down at Long Island so I had about a 100 metre dash to the players gate to get off the ground and I couldn't get off the ground fast enough the kids were running across and the young girl, I mean she may have, may have been around about 10 <clears throat> jumped the fence and she was running across and I slowed down to let her sort of run in, in front of me but as she ran in front she turned and I was wearing long sleeves at the time and she just grabbed my sleeve and tugged on it and I looked down and she looked up at me and she said you cheated 
And I thought, hmm, maybe it's not going to be all that well received. <laughs> um, and here we are 40-odd years later. So there you go. So that was your initial reception from a fan. What was it like moments after in the dressing sheds, I guess, surrounded by your teammates and, and then media and then the general public and, and those sort of things in the, the hours and the days following? Um, Michael, it was pretty quiet in the dressing room. Um, I, got, I got into the dressing room probably one of the first in the dressing room, I guess, and everyone sort of filed in after that and no one was saying a word and I didn't say anything and nobody was probably game to say anything. I think everyone was stunned pretty much. So I realised that uh, the, the guys probably needed a bit of space and I needed a bit of space. So I, I went and had a shower and left them to it, let them talk amongst themselves. Um, while I was in the shower, we had a one-day game in, in Sydney. That was the Sunday, obviously. Uh, Tuesday, we had a one-day in, in Sydney. We were flying up to Sydney on the Monday, except for the Sydney-based players who were going home that night. And while I was under the shower, I thought, you know what, Melbourne's probably not a great place for me to be tomorrow morning, particularly at the Melbourne airport where you are pretty much a sitting duck. Um, so I, I came out of the shower and went to our team manager, John Edwards, and said, uh, John, um, maybe you could get me on a flight tonight with the Sydney boys. It might be just a good idea for me to be in, in Sydney tomorrow rather than Melbourne. Um, mind you, it didn't make that much difference. But um, So I, I flew out with... There was, um, Doug Walters, Trevor, my brother, um, Lenny Pascoe. Might have been someone else, I can't think, who, oh, Graham Beard maybe, and myself. There were about four or five of us anyway. And I was in a, in a cab with, um, with Doug and Trevor, I think, and we were about halfway to the airport and Doug said, um, well, there were 60,000 people at the MCG today who felt, very much the same as I did at the end of the movie, The Sting. What the bloody hell happened there? That <laughs> 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 was pretty much the, the icebreaker. And um, actually, I think Len was in the car and Len, um, Len and Doug started going and uh, yeah, we sort of broke the ice and um, we, we started talking about it a little bit, but not a, not a great deal. I think sort of everyone sort of understood. You know, they, they had been around obviously and seen what was going on around the, the team and how I was regularly in in meetings with David Richards uh, Secretary of the Cricket Board at the time and um, the frustration that we all felt playing on, on the MCG and, you know coach you've been on the MCG it's a very big ground yeah and you know when I went to speak to the Secretary of the Melbourne Cricket Club about trying to get better conditions he said well what's the problem it's the same for both sides and I said well that's not the point yeah. And he said, "Well, anyway, he said you get the you get the same scores here that you get at the other ground, so I don't see the problem." And I said, well, "You know, you don't understand. As captain, this is the biggest ground in the world. Um, I look around sometimes and wonder where half my fielders have gone because the gaps are so big. And you know, if you gave us a different, a decent pitch here, we'd get scores close to 300 because the ground is just impossible to defend. And it was a full size ground in those days." And there was a hundred metres between fine leg and square leg. So there were huge gaps and there were lots of areas that, A, you could hit boundaries, but, you know, twos and threes, fours were run reasonably regularly at the MCG in the day because the gaps were, were so big. So 
we'd have made scores much, uh, you know, much bigger than the, the the other grounds just because the size of the M- MCG. But anyway, um, we were sitting around having a, just going back a step. We're sitting around having a few beers with some of the uh, New Zealand guys, and they were sort of lamenting the fact that you know we got such big crowds in uh, in Australia for cricket, but they couldn't attract a crowd in in New Zealand because you know rugby was the main sport and cricket was the sort of second cab off the rank and they just couldn't attract crowds. And I said, well, leave it with me for a couple of days and we'll see what we can work out. (laughs) So we we filled the grounds in New Zealand the next year when we went there. So um, (laughs) obviously it did something. Yeah, no doubt it did. Uh, Greg, you've had many roles within Australian cricket, no less the Australian captaincy. But as you've moved later into your career and even up to now, Touch points at different stages. One of them a selector, but you've been heavily involved with the Australian cricket team over many years. Mitchell Marsh last night on, at the Australian Cricket Awards. We've been talking all morning about his acceptance speech. You know Swamp. You know Sean, uh, having been a selector when he was at the outset of his Test career. And I'm not sure if you were physically in the chair when Mitch started. But how great is it for people that know Mitch as a person that they're starting to see him, his authentic self. And the country are just falling in love with him. Yeah, look, Mitch is the whole Marsh family. They're a great family and very talented, obviously. And um, Mitch is undoubtedly the most talented of the lot. You know, a great all-round cricketer, terrific bloke. Captained the um, Australian Under-19 team in uh, 2010 when we won the uh, the World Cup. He's been, you know, he's a natural leader. Um, people warm to him. You, you saw the authentic uh, Mitch last night. You know, his teammates, everybody just um, is attracted to him and, and warm to him. I'm just so pleased that he is doing at the top level what we all hoped that he would do years ago. And, um, you know, he's, he's shown moments of it uh, up until just recently. But in recent times, you know, the authentic Mitch, and he's let himself go. He's just, you know, obviously been prepared to take the risks and, which you have to do. I mean, if, if you want to make runs at the highest level, you've got to risk getting out. You've got to play a few shots. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you want to get wickets, you, you've got to risk getting hit for four. So, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a game of risk management. Uh, life is, a, is, a, is about risk management. Um, and, you know, I think Mitch was probably just a little bit tentative in his, in his early days. And he's thrown caution to the wind. And, and what a player. I mean, he hits the ball as hard as anyone's ever hit the ball without trying to hit the ball hard. Yeah. You know, he's, he's a big man. Um, he bowls a, a heavy ball. He's, um, you know, he's just a very good, good cricketer. And, you know, I hope he can keep this up for quite a few years to come. And just on the, the Australian top six, are, are you comfortable with Steve Smith batting at, at opener and Cam Green at four? What would your makeup of, of the top six look like? I think that's the best top six, you know, the best six batsmen in the country, and that's what you want that in your in your top six, and you, you find places for them. Um, you know, just work out how to you know, get the best lineup you can get. You know, I've, I've felt for a while now, probably um, started thinking it last season that Steve's getting to that stage of his career where it, it gets harder. You know. It, I remember having a conversation with Sachin Tendulkar when I was coaching India years ago. Sachin came to me and he said, why does batting get harder? Surely it should get easier. I said, well, the problem is that when you're younger, you don't think much about anything other than see the ball, hit the ball and, and looking to score runs. 
as you start to have success, you feel the responsibility, but the opposition also see you as a threat. So they put a lot more work into you and, and make scoring runs that much harder. Plus, you've played on this ground before and you know that the pitch will do this, it's got this sort of tricks, it's a bit up and down, whatever it is. You've got a lot more thoughts going on in your mind and humans, as they get older, become more conservative. You don't get more adventurous as you as you get older because you know the you know, the things that can go wrong, and that's the stage that Steve is at with his batting. and And you start to realise that if you are not one hundred percent switched on mentally, then making runs at that level consistently is very hard work. And you get to the point where you're not sure you want to work that hard anymore. And I think Steve's been going through that for a little while, and and Waiting to go into bat is probably the worst part of it. Mm. Where you know you're sitting there, and whether you want to or not, the thoughts start sneaking into your mind. You know just about the things that can go wrong and how hard it can be. And I think Steve was at is at the stage where he needed a new challenge, and he probably wanted to get out there straight away rather than sit and wait for however long. And you know, I think this could be a masterstroke. I, you know, I really think we started to see in Brisbane what he's capable of. Um, we know what he's capable of, but he can make runs anywhere. And room had to be found in that batting order for Cameron Green. You know, Cameron's probably going through a little bit that uh, Mitch Marsh went through early in his career that he, he's trying to be a little bit careful at the moment. I think he's just got to relax and, and let his natural talent shine through because he is a quality batsman he, uh, you know, is probably, you know, in that batting lineup. He is the superstar of the next generation if he can work out batting at that level. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And we've seen it from Travis Head, from Mitchell Marsh and other players during the early phase of their career. Figuring out how to be comfortable in your own skin is a big part of it, not just your raw ability. Greg, thanks so much for your time this morning talking about it's been 40-odd years on this day, the underarm ball. Thanks for your uh, candor. Thanks for your talking about the moments in the change rooms. As always, Greg, thanks for joining us. Cheers, Trent. Thanks, Michael. SEN Summer Brecky, Trent Copeland and Michael Karianis with you this morning, 7.43am in Sydney. We've been talking all morning about the Allen Border Medal hilarious acceptance speech last night from Mitch Marsh. It was absolutely classic, of course, Mitch Marsh winning the Allen Border Medal at the Australian Cricket Awards on 223 votes out in front of Pat Cummins in second. Ash Gardner winning the top gong the Belinda Clark Award in the women's game, 147 votes out in front of Elise Perry. Now, we have SEN Zone, host of many shows, mm. the Missile James Magnuson on the line. Good morning, Missile. How are you? Morning, lads. Never better. How are you guys? Never better, he says. Yeah, we're going good in here. Uh, we've just had MC running his own segments. He's finally lifted the keyboard back up and contributed <laughs> to the Daily Telegraph. Uh, but it's been a good morning. We were talking yesterday about uh, r- the story that came out that Russia has been stripped of a 2022 Winter Olympics gold medal for team figure skating. Um, sa- they've sanctioned Russia. And the important part of this, and I'm really keen to get your opinion on it, is bumping the U.S. team 
up from second place to receive then gold medals. What's your take on this whole thing? Because doping violations or however it comes to fruition, it's not an exact science, right? Yeah, it's not an exact science. Um, I've been involved in two situations uh, of similar ilk. The first one, um, so in London 2012 Olympics, our Australian 4x100 freestyle team got fourth. Uh, A Russian team came second, I think, second or third, so they got a medal. Uh, A few years down the track, one of the swimmers was banned for doping, but they didn't backtrack on those results and give us a medal because there was grey area around when was he doping, was he doping during London, that sort of thing. So it's quite a grey area. Um, Even given that, years down the track, the medal doesn't mean anything when they give it to you retrospectively. Like, there's no 20,000 people there clapping you when that medal gets sent in the mail. That's a pretty empty thing. So, really, to the athletes, that doesn't mean anything. And a big part of being an athlete, right, is, um, well, it's a job. You're setting yourself up for, for life after sport. Yep. Sponsors don't go, wow, well, you know, James was in a relay back in London that now got bronze, so we'll bring him on board as an ambassador. That stuff's dead and buried years down the track. So, as a from a financial perspective, the the loss has already been taken. The second time I was involved in it, um, we so actually same Olympics, we got a bronze medal in the four by one hundred medley relay, and a couple of years down the track, Brenton Rickard, one of our swimmers, uh, he was a breaststroker in that team, had an irregular test and it got taken to the court of arbitration for sport. He ended up getting off, but in the meantime. They were contacting us saying that we may get our medals taken off us. So there's there's real inconsistencies in the in the process. There's inconsistencies around proving when the athlete was on what substance. Um, but as far as an athlete's perspective, it's an empty medal. So you don't really care but years down the track about getting given a, a medal retrospectively. When they say to you, Missile, that they can strip your medal, do they physically ask for it back, or how does it how does it work? <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty funny, actually. So um, all my medals and paraphernalia and stuff are kept kept safe by my mum and dad. I don't have anything in my own house. And uh, I called my mum and dad and told them about it. And mum's like, well, good luck to them. They'll have to come and strip it from me because <laughs> I'm not sending it back to them. So, so they actually <laughs> so ask for, they, they ask for it, do they? Yeah, they, they ask for it back. Yeah. <laughs> That's but whether pretty... they get it or not, like as if these blokes in Russia are going, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no worries. Got this little thing going on over in Ukraine at the moment, yeah. but I'll, I'll be concerned about you guys and send my metal, metal back express post. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah. yeah. No, actually, you know what? No worries. You can come to my yes. house and I'll yeah. give it to you. Yeah. Yeah. You think it's hard going up to Port Macquarie and getting it off Mrs. Magnuson. <laughs> you know, go, para- <laughs> go parachute into Moscow and b- bring it out of their hands. <laughs> exactly right. Hey, we were talking, MC was giving you a bit of stick that 150 million Powerball wasn't enough for you mm. uh, a little yeah. while ago. What about 200 yeah. mil tonight? A, are you in it to win it? And B, are you happy with that amount? Yeah, 200 mil will, will be just enough for the rest of your life. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to explain the current property market to MC, but now we're at 200 mil. There are houses in Sydney worth over 100 million dollars. So if I win that 200 mil, first and foremost, I want the biggest house in Sydney, obviously. Yeah. Then the rest of the money I can live off. But MC was talking about a piddly little 15 million dollar house. Like that's all well, I that need. That might get you maybe. That might get you a parking space in Point Piper, but it's not going to get you a house, MC. <laughs> I don't want to live there. 
<laughs> I don't want to live next to you, mate. Far out. It'll be, imagine. No, and no, then you wanted, problem. you wanted a nanny and stuff. You don't even have kids. Yeah, no, no, I want a nanny for myself. I need someone to cook and clean for me. No, MC, the, you, don't want, you don't want to be the richest man on the street because then everybody comes to you looking for handouts. You want to go where the other rich people are so nobody hassles you. That's the secret. Well, this is our other point, right? Apparently, some, well, the experts, experts. are saying... Um, maybe try and keep it a secret from your family and friends. That's got you written all over it. But I'm not sure <laughs> how you're going to do that with your $200 million house. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but she's not around, so I will. My girlfriend has a client who won a uh, lotto or Powerball and has never told anyone. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. You've started yeah. the hunt. SN listeners will wow. be all over it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> she's got a heap of clients. But, yeah, that was, that's one of her like high net worth um, clients is someone that won – I don't know if it was Lotto or Powerball, but a lot of money and has never told anyone who's made like really subtle, quiet investments here and there and hasn't really lived that different of a life since. They must have had plenty to start with, though, I'd say. Like you, could only, like, you can only do it in a way where you have a, a decent living standard already. So you don't have yeah, to make well, a significant you, jump. If you started rocking up to SEN in a Ferrari, I'd be asking questions. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly my point. What's on for the rest of the week, mate? You got a not on rotation Uh, this week. What's happening? I'm with you next week um, from Monday. Yeah, next next week I'll be back with the Brecky crew just at the gym at the moment, working hard this week at the gym, um, then back to normal programming. Looking forward. Now the cricket's done, the tennis is done. Finally, we can talk about God's game, rugby league again. Because it stopped us over the last couple of weeks anyway. <laughs> we tried, mate. The MC it. starts bringing his own segments to the show. <laughs> Players under pressure. <laughs> uh, Miss Oil, thanks for coming on this morning. Uh, we love your content as always. Have a great day. Pleasure, lads. Chat yeah, soon. Man. We are here for Bryden's Lawyers. Unable to work due to injury or illness? Contact Bryden's Lawyers. Stay with us. Plenty more to come, including Jared Whiteley and Greg Chappell. SEN Summer Brekkie here Thursday, the 1st of February. SEN 11.70am, Trent Copeland and Michael Carianis with you this morning. In the chairs for Vossi and Brandy, the boys are back. Monday, February 12. We've had Joel and Fletch return. Matty White is back and Jimmy Smith also back on SEN, the home of sport. We're going to talk cricket with Jared Waitley soon, but we had some uh, mm. interesting opinion yeah. On your Vossioki choice on the text line, well, 0457 736 736. Um, I'm thinking we might push for Vossi and Brandy to make One Direction their new leading song. What do you think <laughs> after some of this feedback here? MC, way too many, cre- way too creepy, bro. How many SEN listeners do you think listen to these Muppets? <laughs> <laughs> Harry Styles, come on. This guy's dead set rank from the Western Sydney Eagle. Enough is enough, please. From Dan. Yeah, well, it, it is his birthday. We were doing it in honour of his birthday. Uh, I wonder if Jared Waitley is a fan of One Direction. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we ask him. We've got some uh, great footage and audio of Jared throughout the test summer. Stark over the wicket bowls. Hamza fins, pops it up. Smith, yes, 
Australia win the Boxing Day test in extra time on day four. Jamal's expensive in his first over. He is backing at Mitch Marsh. He's driving and he's dropped. Oh, no. oh he's dropped. The fellow <laughs> Shafiq has dropped an absolute soda and not for the first time it slipped. Oh, my goodness me. To Warner. He's covering up. He's struck in front. No sense of theatre from the DRS. Dave Warner is out for 57. His work for Australia in test cricket is done. He lets fly. Hazel's bowled. Shamar Joseph has bowled the West Indies to the most romantic of victories. And one of the truly great upsets in Test cricket history. The voice of summer on SEN, Jared Waitley, is with us this morning. Jared, that must bring back some nice memories. Good morning. Trent, hello. It was it was a much better summer than we feared. Oh, I reckon we all lived that in the corridors, delighted by some competitive cricket. And then truly astonishing at the end, that West Indies chapter will, will live with us for many a year to see a, a single player shape a test match and conjure a result like that. Um, uh, just remarkable to, to witness. Yeah, theatre, emotion, uh, the story, it was one of those things where I'm sure you were the same, Jared, being at the ground. It was one of those moments in time in a player's career, but also in the significance of test cricket. But one of those last night as well. And in terms of people with their words, it doesn't come much bigger than Jared Waitley in terms of the significance, but... Mitch Marsh, in his acceptance speech last night, it was hilarious, it was emotional, it was tuned in to his family, but it was also accepting the biggest award in Australian cricket, Mitchell Marsh. What did you make of it? Oh, I think I'm a bit fat at times and I love a beer. It's instantly <laughs> iconic. It'll last well beyond the first wave of memes and gifts. It's almost a way of life, isn't it? I can see T-shirts and bumper stickers. It'll endlessly be quoted around drip trays and cricket clubs. I tell you, I especially like the next sentence, which won't be played as on all the rest of the sentence. But you see the best in me always and you've changed my life. Yeah. And I think I don't, think I can remember a clearer expression of gratitude publicly well beyond sport. Find yourself someone who sees the best in you always and they'll change your life. That was the reference to Pat Cummins and Andrew McDonald. Uh, what a what a remarkable comeback story this is from Marsh. A wholehearted cricketer who really was always everything that we love in our sports people. He's humble and self-deprecating. He's got a larrikin streak. He loves his family and nothing more than playing for his country. But he was given a torrid time in his striving to become the player that he wanted to be. It looked like that, that dream would never quite be realised in Test cricket. And then one innings changes the course of everything at Headingley. And there he is last night. What a, what a great sentiment is. I hope we don't look back in three years' time like Cove and go, well, that was a bit weird. Um, brilliant. Just a brilliant acknowledgement of what he's been able to do. Uh, and I'm so admiring of all the slings and arrows that he was able to move through. And now he's, when he, the way he's hitting the ball over the past eight months uh, is probably superior to anybody else in cricket around the world. We've been talking about that speech and, and reminiscing on um, some of the great all-time acceptance speeches. Do any spring to your mind? I can't think of one just quite so from the heart as that. There have been, um, probably like all of us, Michael, we've all been in rooms for these things and we've seen various telecasts, but not many leave a true imprint. Mm. And I know gr great speeches are collected um, 
and there aren't terribly many in sport. I, and I, I must, I, off the, just having had a quick think about that, and I, this is where we were always in great hands with our SEN audience, I can't think of a better one. Yeah, yeah, and that's where I my mind goes to the chat during the Ashes where he said things like, "I'm the only person ever on a holiday to score a Test hundred <laughs> in an Ashes series." Yeah, you know, the the press conference in I think it was 2019 where he talked about, you know, most people in Australia hate me, but I love this baggy and hopefully I'll win them over one day." You know, this is a story that's built mm. up to this moment, and that's what we love about athletes about sport is following the ups and the downs. And it's why it's of such great significance. Jared, just on the West Indies and Shamar Joseph, there were questions this week around A, Australia's top order, but B, uh, from SEN's own Tim Payne on whether we were cheering too hard for the West Indies in that moment. I'm interested in your opinion. Having called the final moment of that test match, did you find yourself in the chair thinking, gee, I hope this actually happens? And I must... so. There were three possibilities, and all of them were equally entrancing. Um, Smith with a century for the winning runs, a tie, which was probably, if you'd, if you'd said to me in my heart, what were you hoping for, I would have said a tie yep. because of all, all, that, um, all the historical nods in there, or Shamal Joseph bowling the West Indies to win. So uh, I didn't find myself actively barracking for the West Indies, but I, I, think, yep. there is a, I think there's a nuance uh, and the nuance is, I think most people were barracking for test cricket um, rather than against Australia and for the West Indies. Australia does so much winning in test cricket that it's almost transposable. There's plenty to go around. The West Indies do no winning like this in test cricket. And if you are one who fears a little bit for the direction of the evolution, and it was very legitimate to fear and probably still is for yeah. the West Indies involvement in test cricket in the future, that's what was that felt like what was at stake. So it was grander than just the next Australian Test win. So yep. I, yeah, I well, um, that that's a very personal sentiment from Tim. I actually don't think that's what was going on, mate. And in a couple of days, you're off to Vegas. Yes, Super yes. Bowl, Forty Niners v Chiefs. Um, how excited are you for that? And can we get a tip out of you? I am super excited. Um, I'm jealous. I've never been to Vegas. <laughs> uh, I don't. It wouldn't be a shock to anybody if I confess that I don't really see myself as a Vegas guy. <laughs> so it's a big adventure. There's something for everyone there. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll take your word for it, and I'll be a bit the wiser in two weeks' time. And I know in in America there was this sort of initial blowback to the matchup. It, this is the best matchup. Yeah. This is the the best team of the generation against the best team of the year. They met in a Super Bowl that I was fortunate enough to call in Miami, and it was it was absolutely brilliant and demanded a rematch, and that rematch comes. Um, if there's fatigue around a great team, I've never bought into that sort of stuff. Oh, golf was better than when Tiger Woods was winning. Tennis was at its best when Roger Federer was winning. Is The Chiefs are a brilliant team to watch. They're so entertaining. They have the best player in that game in Patrick Mahomes. The 49ers, it's a while since they have actually been successful. So they're one of the storied franchises, but the last two Super Bowls they've made, uh, they've lost. So their their history, their successes date back to the 80s and the 90s, and they crave it desperately. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a brilliant matchup. It's probably the best matchup that was on offer. The build-up would have been different with the romance of the Detroit Lions, and I totally get that. But I think for the purity of the match itself, it's absolutely stacked. And all I've learned is 
Um, I don't pick against Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. So well, that's that's what I know about the Chiefs. Are you talking 49ers fan here? And I'm hoping that the Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant story yeah. just keeps on going. You're going to be over there. You're calling it for SEN. I'm very jealous. One day I'll get there with you, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Jared, have a great time. And thanks for your time this morning. Trent, Michael, terrific. Thanks. Welcome back to SEN Summer Brecky. Trent Copeland and Michael Carianis with you. Five minutes to seven in Sydney, five to six in Brisbane. MC, it is the 1st of February. Mm. And plenty of big moments. You always come prepared. Yeah, my keyboard has been on fire. <laughs> what have you got for <laughs> in us? In 1960, this day? Australian tennis great Rod Laver claims his first Grand Slam, beating fellow Australian Neil Fraser in five sets. In 1981, what a moment this was. Australian cricket captain Greg Chappell sensationally instructs his younger brother Trevor to bowl underarm to Brian McKenzie with New Zealand needing six off the last ball to tie the match. McKechnie, sorry, to tie the ball in the last... Uh, to tie the ball... No. <laughs> Let me just try it again. Okay. In 1981, Australian cricket captain Greg Chappell sensationally instructs his younger brother to bowl underarm with New Zealand needing six off the last ball to tie the match. It looks to me as if they're going to bowl underarm off the last ball. Rod Marsh is saying no, mate, but I'm sure he's going to bowl an underarm delivery on the last ball and bowl it along the ground and be sure that it has not been hit for six. The umpires have been told, the batsmen have been told, and this is possibly a little bit disappointing. Let's make sure it is an underarm, but I've got the feeling it's a big ex-Victorian skipper we're going to bowl an underarm. We haven't believed it. And that's a disappointing finish. Disappointed Brian McKechnie, the crowd boom, and it's all over. Let me just tell you what I think about it. I think it was a disgraceful performance from a captain who got his sums wrong today, and I think it should never be permitted to happen again. Mm, interesting. So Strong. we will have Greg Chappell joining us later on in the show. We might reference that. I'm, I'm sure he's never spoken about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's going he's gonna to break his silence yeah, exactly. with us on Summer Breakfast here, Cobes. Um, <laughs> SEN's own Matt Rogers is 48 today, born on this day in 1976. Skibaletti. Then Taylor's gone wide for Taylor. Rogers. What a play, what a call. What yeah, a player. What a, call. what a player Matt Rogers was. Dual international. Yep. Um, silky skills. Uh, outstanding for the Sharks, Wallabies. And finished in the Gold Coast. Now doing a great job for SEN on radio. That's right. And in 1982, Late Night with David Letterman made its debut on American television. You're a Letterman fan? I've watched... Oh, 
bits and pieces of it. I was more of a Jerry Springer fan. Uh, yeah, right. I just used to love what, <laughs> how much it meant to the American public. Everyone used to watch those mm. late night shows and, and still do. 